0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking with Dr. David Humphrey about his The Time of Laughter, Comedy, and the Media Cultures of Japan, which is out from the University of Michigan Press in 2023. The Time of Laughter examines the roles of mediated laughter in the media and cultural history of post-war Japan. It has a strong focus on the temporality of laughter. And as the book shows, comedy has been central to Japanese entertainment, beginning with the age of television all the way through the current age of social media. Humphrey identifies the 1980s specifically as a transformative decade, and his narrative is particularly attentive to both this decade and the ambivalent functions of laughter as both unifier and divider. Here, uh, in the discussion of the unifying and dividing functions of laughter, His attention to the gendering of laughter is particularly illuminating. The Time of Laughter is a welcome academic intervention to a critical, but at least in the English language literature, largely overlooked aspect of the history and culture of Japan over the past seven decades. Okay, Dr. Humphrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, So I'd like to ask you first to uh, tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the project that became The Time of Laughter. Uh, I think, you know, comedy is one of those subjects that generally sort of falls out of academia in in a way. Uh, and so I'm really curious about how it is that you found yourself doing this.
0: Yeah, thank you. First off, feel free to call me David uh, in the interview. Uh, yeah, so the the project, I think like many first books, uh, goes back to my dissertation work. Uh, but I think even earlier than that, um, I had a lifelong love of comedy, uh, grew up uh, loving comedy, but also when I first went to Japan, uh, I think for a lot of people, probably what's going on in Japan when you first get there it probably shapes a lot of what your experiences of the country uh, and sticks with you. And so I I landed not to date myself right in 2000. Uh, the what I boom what I boom is taking off at that point, and as I like, discussed in the book, there's you there's these cyclic booms that go on in Japan, especially through the age of TV. Uh, and so this is like the last kind of hurrah of that, and I landed right during that, and so loved it. It was definitely a way for me to learn Japanese or better my Japanese as I'm watching TV, so I'd always enjoyed it. Uh, and then uh, when I went back to grad school, I hadn't really been thinking about it. Uh, and my master's has been on uh, more like so post war, uh, you know, bringing in the affect theory, thinking about shame, uh, and it was coming down to thinking about a, a project, uh, and I was discussing with my advisor, and I was going to go f- forward with that, with this kind of jury topic <laughs> about the post-war and shame. Not that I didn't like it, but it was it was sort of a dreary topic, and just sort of on a whim, I put together another proposal for comedy, thinking, yeah, he's going to hate it, and he was like, no, go for it. This is great. This is actually better. I was like, okay, <laughs> that works, um, and so that's kind of how the project got started, uh, and it's been through many, many lives, I think, in, in shapes and forms. Uh, since then, uh, but I think yeah, I mean, I, I can talk more about it. But so how it sort of I think took shape is, is then when I when I went over to Japan, I was thinking I was kind of coming it more from, uh, you know, sort of I think maybe a Western gaze or just sort of like an av- you know average person on the street gaze thinking it would be necessary subversive or, uh, I think as as I'll talk about later, that everybody assumes it's it's a male audience, so it's male form. Uh, and really, started realize that that's not what's going on. There's a huge female audience for laughter and comedy in Japan, and it's it's not always subversive, though it's not always not subversive. Uh, and so, I think those kind of experiences really shaped uh, the project as went along, uh, and and got got the project to where it is right now.
1: I think that's so interesting that uh, comedy for you was uh, in part something that interested you as you know as part of a, a language study, because um, people often talk about how humor is. One of the most difficult uh, pieces of, of picking up the language, um, you know, it's so culturally embedded. There's so much linguistic complexity, um, and I, I certainly can tell you, I'm, I'm not watching any Norwegian comedies these days. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's that's, that's really fascinating because I, I think it, you know, it shows that already at the beginning you had a sort of different perspective on comedy, um, and so yeah, I'm sort of, well, I'm curious if we'll sort of see that coming out as we uh, work through the book here. Uh, and I also I just wanted to say before we start I think it's I think it is really insightful to think about you know this the the questions of audience and also about whether it's sort of subversive or not and the medium um, there's I, in my own experience I did a little bit of radio I was in Japan and and I've I sort of have a love of radio and editing podcasts which I guess is in some ways the outgrowth of that um, and my you know I kind of watched over the years as um, TV became more sanitized. And a lot of the, uh, what was, you know, a little bit more risque, a little bit more subversive seemed to uh, remain on radio Um, in the, yeah. And and I think now that a lot of that is moving into the social media spaces of, you know, YouTube and whatever. uh, So maybe we'll, maybe we'll at the end have a chance to talk about that as well. Um, But, you know, obviously uh, I want to dive into the book and give you a chance to talk about that. Uh, So this is a book uh, that talks a lot about the idea of mediated laughter and especially on television as we've talked about um, in post-war japan so one of the things that you do which i think is particularly fascinating is you center the temporality of laughter uh, the ways in which comedy which laughter have you know, on the one hand, united and on the other hand, divided the, the private and the public. Um, and also, as you've mentioned, the sort of the gendering of laughter, uh, both the laughter itself and, and laughter as a sort of, um, you know, audi- in terms of the audience. Uh, so in the broadest strokes, you know, you're, you're talking about the decade of the 1980s, the sort of long 1980s, I guess, when you sort of uh, give a, a run up there um, with a kind of before and after narrative about the modalities, the affect of laughter. So, you know, seeing that, that long-term interest in affect coming out. Um, on Japanese television, uh, so maybe it makes the most sense then to think about uh, the characteristics of uh, TV-mediated laughter in post-war Japan. You know, getting up into the 1970s to sort of get to to get us up to speed to get ready to talk about the rest of the book, um, and then to dig into the 1980s as this kind of transitional decade, which is I think how you're you're identifying it, um, especially in chapter three, uh, before thinking about the the landscape. Uh, the soundscape of media mediated laughter since then. Um, so I wonder if you can lay out for us then the view from you know 10,000 meters, 35,000 uh, freedom units, whatever it is, um, vis-a-vis your biggest themes. So you're arguing, I think that, um, for example, uh, analyses emphasizing the homogenizing, synchronizing impact of TV are only really seeing half the picture. Um, and I, I saw you sort of sympathetic to a Bactinian reading of the carnivalesque in, in nature, uh, nature of laughter, um, underscoring the, the sort of in-the-momentness, the, the the simultaneity um, of laughter, um, and also the, the ambivalence of laughter. Um, and you also point out that TV leaned a lot on female laughter, something that's, you know, come up already um, in the 50s and 60s, as a sort of, you know, ideologically at least, as sort of unifying rather than divisive. And then there's this backlash in the following decades um, against the idea of TV laughter, specifically female. So I wonder if you could sort of address some of those big themes um, and the kind of prehistory of the core of the book.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting reading through your questions as preparing uh, that you centered in on the 1980s uh, as a flex point, because that really how the the project ended up. And I think just wanted to note there, when I originally started writing the book and when was when it was a dissertation, I didn't even have much on the 80s because I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, and so it's interesting, even for me, looking at this sort of, you know, outside looking, it really did could become this sort of flex point uh, in my work because I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I grew up in this place where the 1980s, we was already kind of handled. We knew it was postmodern. It was all this. Um, and the 1980s always seems to be kind of treated as an end point, like the 60s, the 70s, TV was getting unified the 1980s, uh, you get this sort of reflective moment, also in the economy, the bubble economy brings the the post-war economic miracle to the end, and then you get the 90s and everything else. Uh, And you start realizing, no, that's not what's going on, or that's not what I want to say is going on. First of all, on TV, uh, really, I'm I'm sort of kind of arguing against that really pat sort of, okay, again, 1960s, 70s, unified uh, television audience, and also in 1980s, uh, new media comes in, fragmentation, uh, and yeah, that is going on. But then I'm trying to show that there's this fragmentation going on before that, or it never was this unified audience that it, they thought it was. Uh, and a lot of people writing on TV in the 1960s and 70s already hinting at that already. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, not thinking of the 80s as a sort of end of the, the post-war uh, you know economic miracle. Uh, and then everything else is being lost, the lost decade, the lost decades actually 80s being a sort of a starting point uh i I was interested you said the long 80s i don't know if that's what you meant by this really so the 80s feels to me as a starting point for uh what we have at least right now in comedy so that's the sort of big sort of Uh, you know sort of media-based argument uh sort of I don't know if we call it a historical argument but the larger argument trying to make there sort of push back not completely say okay that's not true we didn't have fragmentation we didn't have any of that but really sort of push back against it a little bit and complicate it and use laughter and a comedy as a way to do that uh and so I also did try to set up the book as a book I don't know if I succeeded but as a book that someone could sit down and also use as a history of tv uh because I feel like uh, you know, Jason Michael DeCun has a I don't know if you has a really good history of early television, uh, and that brings you up to the 70s. But in English, there aren't that many good I'm not saying they're not good, but there aren't that many like sort of really big, thorough histories of television in Japan uh for non-Japanese audiences to access. And so I also wanted the, the the book to do sort of double duty uh in that sense. So it's not so much a theme or something more what we're trying to do with the book as well. So to delve more into the laughter, right, The big a big theme there, then is this idea of a time or a temporality of laughter. I think it makes sense, in a sense. Uh, you know, I hadn't originally thought of doing the project, either. the more I thought about it, it really made sense. There's all these writings like Bakhtin and uh, Bergson. If you look at it, they're not talking about the time of laughter, but as I tried to do in the introduction, I tried to tease out that, that you can actually see how they are making sort of temporal uh, issues. And I think it makes sense to us also, uh, as I try to lay out in the, the beginning of the intro that there is there's a specific sort of temporality that we're familiar with comedy and laughter. It's very much in the now. Uh, you gotta as a, you gotta be there to get the joke. Next year you're not the joke's not going to be funny anymore. The hyper, you know, jokes—they're not going to be funny in two months. Sorry, kind of are you know, uh, uh, getting that feel to them. So it is very much in the now, it's this, this moment uh, of the now. Uh, and I think that's what makes it tricky. And we have talked about at the beginning how we kind of shy away from it uh, in academia. I think that what makes it tricky: a, there's there's a sense, okay, it's it's superficial. It's it's not uh, something I do serious. But I think it's also tricky to deal with because we're always in this book too it's talking about the past uh, and so it's tricky to deal with something that's rooted in the now but also do it in the sort of backwards gaze uh, so there I think there's that sense of the temporality of the now that is interesting though and vital to look at. At the same time I want to sort of emphasize I'm not trying to argue though at the same time that there's a sort of essential time to laughter or comedy. It's always going to be uh, of the now it's always going to be this sort of uh, contradictory time what I'm really you know I'm not saying there isn't I'm not saying there is I'm saying I'm not the person to make that argument I'm trying to sort of lay that aside uh, and say you know we've got this moment uh, where sort of you know we've got discursive forces are coming together there's a lot of people talking about laughter and comedy uh, in, in the post-war, Yanagita Kunio, and the bigs are, you know, uh, he wasn't post-war, but that gets them picked up in the post-war and people are talking about uh, laughter and comedy. Uh, and so then that sort of intersects with the right, uh, perfectly with the rise of television. I think you get this sort of time of laughter that I'm arguing is reflecting this contradictory temporality or other sort of contradictions of television. Uh, which is to say as you're we saying in the beginning or as you said in your question uh televisions often talked about or early television talked about as its synchronizing functions the broadcast goes out everybody sort of gets in step uh and you know everybody's time is is aligned with television and so that's often portrayed as then the sort of uh realization of this movement that had been going on you know during the modern era uh of national times being more and more coordinated uh, and we have lots of famous arguments about that benedict anderson the idea of the television uh, not the television every the newspaper everybody picking up the newspaper and being in sort of lockstep uh and you know for example yoshimi shunya who's a big uh you know well-known scholar scholar of japanese media really treats the the television as the as penultimate form of that it's like the newspaper on you know steroids uh everybody's you know more than TV and it's on all the time, right? Uh and so I'm saying, yeah, that's that's right. But at the same time, then there's this contradiction that television is already desynchronizing because of our gaps. Uh, you know, we can be pedantic and say there's time from the the broadcast uh tower to the TV. Um, but there's all these moments, you know, and later TV studies looks at this, about how you can inter- you can interpret something differently uh, and there's a gap there. Uh, so there's also these desynchronizing functions. I'm saying laughter is really getting to that because it's sort of in laughter sense. But as, as they're saying, comedy too, you can misinterpret it, you can interpret it other ways. It can be divisive, it can be unifying. because say that's, that's what really sort of started drawing me into comedy as I was saying at the beginning, but started seeing that that's really I'm not saying it's a cause and effect, but more so sort of, it's a good marker for looking at that. Uh, then I think the other major, major and I always probably should wrap up this question, but just a, the other big sort of, I think secondary theme that I'm looking on there is the gender of laughter. I could probably have written a whole nother book on this. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, often felt I didn't get to give it as much prominence as I wanted to, but as you know, it is, it is important uh part of the puzzle because then as they argue throughout television television production television industry uh maybe not some i'm not saying someone sat out and said okay we're gonna co opt women's laughter but that's what they end up doing they start putting out these things called waraya, these audience plants uh to steer laughter they end up being largely female uh, and so in early television, they really are meant to sort of take on this role of being the unifying voice of television uh, and without going too many details. But I think anybody who's familiar with, you know, media histories or you know gender histories can see what's going on there already. Women are being pushed in the sort of unifying role that they are being pushed into doing in the home. And now they're being pushed to do that in uh, on the medium as well. And then I tracked in that there's this backlash against that that also tracks nicely with backlashes. Uh, uh that you see elsewhere um i think it's tommy talks about the, the maternal uh society and how there's sort of this neoliberal uh right-wing push back against that and that checks very well with tv uh there as well we can talk more about that maybe later
1: yeah sure i'd, I'd love to um i just wanted to maybe um interject a, a quick you know observation about what you said before we move on which is you know i mean maybe it's two so you know one thing that i found interesting um, in in using laughter as a case study to think about temporality, um, you know, one of the sort of strengths of this. And, and, you know, partially it's because comedy, as we've said, has been somewhat neglected as an academic subject, but it's it's a really interesting uh, uh, illustration, I guess, of you Know what it, What at some level is a truism that discourse practice, and uh, you know, discourse and practice, uh, you know, ideology and society don't always move at the same pace, right? And so, some of those questions about you know, what's wh- when things are being unified and how, um, are uh, or you know, what we see in the sort of general sort of history of you know, even if you want to do a media history of Japan, uh, is going to be quite different if you break it down a little bit more. And comedy seems to be. Um, something that even within the TV sphere which is itself you know different uh from from maybe an overall picture that you might get um it seems to be a sort of interesting um it's moving at its own pace uh, the other thing actually and I maybe maybe want I uh, respond to this but um I was thinking a little bit about the uh, uh, there was an article I read a long time ago maybe as a graduate student called uh, the column the I think it was called the colonization of nighttime or something like that. It was about the 24-7ization of society. And I thought about the you know the, those periods where broadcast TV still goes dark, right, on some channels, and uh, it does here in Norway, and I think it still does in Japan, and it did the last time I checked. Uh, but you know you have these long stretches of night which are not subject to that sort of disciplining, unifying function of TV, even if you, even if you believe that narrative to and to the extent that it is true. I mean, there's some, as we as you've said, um, uh, validity to that. But I just was thinking about how like you know the you know nighttime has its own sort of wild West feeling about like not having TV. Uh, or if it, or if it did in Japan, it was often the like you know beautiful mountainscapes and like quiet music that was like, you need to go to bed now. Um, but I just I, I just found that sort of fascinating that you know, even when there is something it's kind of timeless in a sense, right? It's not um, you know, scripted programming. It's not even you know, something uh, you know, that you would recognize as a, as a, as a program. It's more sort of a screensaver in a sense. Yeah, I just jump in there. I think
0: what's interesting, the programs we'll talk about later, a lot of those are more sort of anarchic programs come out of late night. Uh, Dan Shonen was the first a late night show before it was a sort of mainstream show. Uh, a lot of these comedians generally get their sort of cut their teeth on late night program where they can do whatever you mentioned radio. There's all these and a lot of are, I don't know if there's so much anymore, but, they, you know, a lot of a lot of the comedians were also coming out of these sort of late night radio talk shows where they were, you know, especially in the 70s. And you could just say whatever you want. Uh, so it does have that. I think that's not just nothing. But it's also anarchic in a sense. Uh, so it's a sort of Bakhtinian festival time in a sense of the day. It's interesting. Yeah,
1: I, I totally agree with that. That's a, and it's a it's a really interesting to think about. You know, in terms of this question of temporality that you're bringing up, that even within the space of a single day, like the temporality is quite different night and day. Um, and and there's that that question of order versus anarchy, or sort of the subversive and not that you that you really bring up in the book. Um, and so I want to dive you know a little bit deeper into the book now um, and think about the nature of laughter uh, on TV uh in the late 50s and into the 60s um so what 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 is it that we need to know specifically about these decades in order to understand uh the transformations that are really the focus of the book um in in the sort of late 70s transferring into the 80s which is the crux of of these uh this transformation
0: yeah, first off, in terms of what's going on in, in television, I think people who know television history in Japan are familiar with it, but maybe some people are not. Uh, the standard narrative of what goes on: nineteen fifties TV comes out. Most Japanese households cannot afford a, a TV, uh, and it's not until the nineteen sixties that most can. Uh, and that's when, you know, you know, first with the royal wedding or the imperial wedding, television ownership starts taking off in the late fifties and sixties. Olympics all they start propelling, TVs move into the home. Before that, TV is being watched on the streets. And these TVs called gaito teribi, which would be placed in like stations and whatnot. Uh, And so a a standard way, and again, I'm not pushing against the standards, it's one I want to sort of complicate and add a little bit more flesh to, is is that with with TVs move into the home, uh, it becomes more family-friendly uh and you're it's also becomes more i wouldn't call it it's not like eye candy in terms of how we feel like eye candy is now but it's focused more on eye candy because you get you're you're getting tvs that you can look at closer rather than across uh, a plaza in a station uh and so you want to see nice stuff uh you want to see better produced content uh and so uh in my reading that's definitely what's going on you and in terms of comedy what's going on that's what's going on uh you, you the 50s was mostly like sort of performance comedy shows uh and interestingly you had already sort of uh what we would now call reality programs of like people being sent out to do weird and wacky stuff on the street uh and then the 60s or late 50s really you see a rise of the variety the variety show as it would look like uh in japan for the coming decade and so just a sort take a step out. I don't think I made that mention. When I talk about comedy in the book, I'm really talking about performance comedy, variety show comedy. Uh, I'm not discounting uh, situational comedy, but I don't treat that as much because just for our non-Japanese listeners, it really doesn't, the situation comedy doesn't take off the way it does uh, in places like the US. So that's what I'm talking about. And the variety show is really taking off uh, in its first form at this point. Really it's a focus on music, but also like skits interspersed with music uh they're very well scripted uh they would i think almost be unfamiliar to most people who know modern variety shows in japan uh you would think okay it's earlier it wouldn't be well produced it's actually much more, in a certain sense it's much better produced and they, they have a really sort of they're really interesting to watch they have a real sort of rhythmic coherence uh the songs and the, the skits often dialogue with each other uh and so really famous one I deal with there is uh, led by Crazy Cats and Peanuts, uh, and basically, uh, you know, put together by their, their, their agency. So it's a vehicle for their their, uh, their agency to show, uh, sell their talent. Uh, and so that's definitely going on. That goes with the narrative, okay, you're moving to the home, you want better produced content, you want family-friendly content, uh, something that everybody's going to enjoy, but it's also not going to ruffle feathers in the home or seem inappropriate. But at the same time, what I'm also arguing or showing, really, not just arguing, is is that the, these there's other programs going on. Performance comedy continues uh, into the early 60s. It doesn't just disappear and then reappear. Uh, you have performance comedy shows like Taisho Terebi Yose, uh, which translates Taisho uh, TV Comedy Theater or something like that, I think. Uh, and that's a really popular uh, performance comedy show. But interestingly. It's a very tight one. It's from most accounts, the performers who went on there had very strict rules. You had to stay in a certain area on the stage. You couldn't move around. You had to keep within a certain uh, realm. You don't want to go off script. You don't want to do anything. Uh, and what uh, and to get back to what's going on in TV here, what I'm arguing there, too, is, is that a lot of it has to do with the technology that's going on TV A lot of times when you read these TVs, they're talking about what's going on in the home, but if you think about what's going on in the studio, video has been introduced in the late 60s, studio video, the the ability to videotape a show and then air it like that, but they couldn't edit it. And so it was really difficult to edit these shows. And so even on these live performance shows, which weren't really live, they taped them live and then they'd reshow them, but they really weren't able to edit them. So there was a lot of like strict requirements there. And that's, that's my argument is what's going on there, uh, with comedy. And then you get this moment then later though, in the sixties, well, all of a sudden that just changes. Like suddenly people are like, okay, no, it's okay to ad lib and we want ad lib. Uh, and you know, wh- what I think is going on there is you have a cultural issues, Going on, uh, obviously, it's the late 60s, the sexual revolution, student activism. Uh, you you know, I think there's a sense that you want shows that are going to match that energy of the time. But also, if you look at the technology, it's becoming easier to edit shows. Uh, I think uh, like really sort of fine tune. So I don't talk as much about this in the, the book because I really didn't have time to. But uh, the switching, the, how they can switch cameras from different angles is becoming more automated. It's not to the level of automation we have today, but it's becoming easier for them to say, okay, yeah, move around a little bit on the stage. And so in the 60, late 60s, late sixties, all of a sudden you get this group, uh, almost out of nowhere, uh, as I discussed more in the book, it's not necessary out of nowhere, uh, called contogo jugogo, uh, Conte 55, uh, from the, the the French term, Conte a, a sketch, but it's a sketch duo, uh, Harimoto Kinichi and Sakagami Jiro, uh, who do these really high action uh, slapstick uh, things that had not been on TV before that. And they also bring in a lot of ad lib, they trained in Asakusa, so they're really comfortable with uh, ad lib. Uh, and they bring all that into TV and the stand, again, the standard narrative or the lore that's been sort of built up around them is, is that they were the sort of singular force, uh, and it wasn't accepted. I'm, I'm a little skeptical. I think that it was like TV was the TV producers were ready for them and they were looking for something like this, uh, but they were good at it. Uh, and hagemondo Kienchi, we can talk a little bit later, he then becomes this real staying force, uh, in Japanese TV. And he does, he kind of sort of ascends the ranks and becomes very influential. Uh, and, and how comedy uh, is produced. That moment then becomes short-lived. In the late 1970s, and said, not the late, the early 1970s, everything kind of flips around. Uh, and as as quick as Hayamoto Kinchi and Kontoko Jugogo rose through the ranks, they also fell very quickly. Uh, and everybody was talking about ad lib and all of a sudden this group, the Drifters in a show called Zane Shugo suddenly pops on the scene. Uh, I I'm sort of being ironic there because anybody who knows Japanese TV or is like grew up doing that, was like, oh, didn't shoot you know, with that it was like this 15-year program, it was there forever. But when it popped up, nobody was expecting anything out of it. Uh, it was a basically scripted comedy. Uh, and it was going against the common wisdom of what was going on, what everything thought was gonna happen, uh, and then just flipped the script again uh in this direction of very high, tightly controlled. But as I discussed in the book, what's interesting there is, is that they're sort of capturing the live feel, uh, and to so, sort of give a shout out there. Otashoichi, who's also written a lot about Japanese comedy and was influential for my book, uh, I think aptly describes it them as a synthesis. They're not just a return to the old. They're, they're synthesizing various sh- strains there then that were happening uh, during the 1960s, between the scripted and the unscripted, the musical and the comedic uh, and bringing them together. Uh, And so we can think about them also as sort of synthesizing those two strands I said we're having between live performance comedy and then the more sort of intimate feel. So then they, 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 they very genius, ingeniously, I think sort of bring that together. And I think that's why they had that staying power, but they really are the sort of image uh, of 1970s comedy in Japan alongside Hagimoto Kinshi, who kind of then goes on his own solo, uh, you know, sort of route. Uh, And it's, it becomes this period that is, it's it, they they create controversies, but it's not the controversies that were go before. It was like, okay, the drifters had a scene where somebody, a, a dog gets their head cut off in a guillotine, and oh, what's that going to do to the children kind of stuff? It wasn't the sort of high-paced controversies that you had at the end of the 60s. I, I kind of skipped over but one of the controversies with Kontogōjugōgō is they had a, sh- a show on TV where they would, uh, during one segment uh do a live basically strip show version of rock paper scissors where they would bring idols on and do rock paper scissors with them and take off pieces of you know items of clothing and then auction them off to children in the audience which is you can think is i I would think is a lot more uh pushing boundaries than uh you know having a doll have their head guillotined off so what i argue there is is that then this is this moment where they really do kind of successfully create that tv audience they do create that sort of veneer of tv as unifying and calm and laughter can be unifying it can be uh they get along laughter without it being the sort of okay laughter is divisive comedy is divisive uh sort of comedy and that then kind of creates this sort of placid feel for the 1970s even though there is a lot going on there uh in terms of uh you know what's developing leading up to the 80s in terms of gender uh just so, uh, uh uh step into that for a second as well because I believe that was also in your question uh there's a similar sort of uh, uh Arc going on there I would say uh not completely similar but uh what's happening I would say is is that as I talk about the book laughter and comedy or the idea of laughter it was always gendered uh at least in the 20th century if you look at the discourse uh you know talk about yanitacunio Takunio um he has a he has an interwar essay called the woman's smile and he talks about how okay you know he pulls out all these idioms that just kind of show you like oh wow this, this really is this, this whole discourse on how laughter is a female thing or uncontrollable laughter is a female thing well, young women they laugh a lot we all know that because there's this uh phrase you know drop the chopsticks uh and the laugh uh which and i'm not just making up that's an actual like phrase uh in japan uh and so you see it was already there. And I'm not saying it just pops out of nowhere, but it's interestingly, it's interesting to me that it doesn't seem it's it's assumed when you look at the 50s and 60s stuff, but you don't actually till the end of the 60s, at least of what I was able to find, see people start talking about, okay, theme television comedy is a sort of more becoming some more feminine thing, uh, or that uh you know, that laughter we hear on the phone. Why is it why is it always women's laughter? You don't see those sort of discussions until maybe the late 60s, really in the into the 70s. Uh and also interestingly too, you know, I talk a lot about how you know comedy really becomes a male dominant industry. It always was, I'm not going to say it wasn't, but you saw, you know, and I've never gone through and done the numbers, but off the cuff, it always feels to me that there that actually once you go into the 70s, there's actually less male, I uh, say less female performers in comedy. And in the post-war moment, you actually do see female trios and female groups and you see husband wife teams and obviously those fits had hetero you know heterosexual norms and and whatnot but you do see female female performers and then with tv they seem to sort of kind of trickle out until you get to the 70s where it becomes a lot more uh male performers and the female performers always there but they never sort of allowed to get the staying well so you get this genderization uh, I guess I'm leading up to get, yeah, and, and what I say in the book is you get this genderization of comedy uh, whereas the 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 role or the mind the, the, the picture in everybody's mind is you have the male comedian uh, and the female uh, you know laugher the female audience is the female the, the women are supposed to be uh, the, the one providing the laughter and I talk more about in the book about this but just very briefly you know, what i'm saying is, is they're drawing on the it's not because something again it's not something essential about laughter it's about what people's assumptions are and the assumption is is that women are supposed to give more unifying warm laughter uh and uh men are cold they don't respond as well so you put them in the audience but they're not gonna they're not gonna laugh as quickly as we can talk and then you know later then that becomes part of the, the backlash is that women laugh too readily and men are more discerning right and uh you know hopefully my my voice is, is is sounds critical enough i'm not agreeing with that uh dear listeners uh but that's 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 the reality of how it's being talked about
1: uh uh-huh. yeah we we could all hear the scare quotes i i <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so that we we're, we're all now geared up uh, to talk about this new mediated laughter which you identify as emerging in the 1980s um, and I, I want to just uh, uh, give a, a little bit of a longer quote from you um, to, to, find, to to set this up one uh, bit more and then ask you some questions about it. So you write that this uh, new comedy of the 1980s is, quote, ambivalent insofar as it could often seem on the one hand to subvert the very status quo that it reaffirmed, and that this ambivalence manifested the tensions and contradictions that television had earlier sought to cover over with laughter, while it also tracked... Uh, with a final breakdown of television's promise of a unified public time. So your your analysis then of the 1980s is centered on the sort of contradictions of the TV-saturated decade um, that comes out of that breakdown. Uh, and so the question I want to ask to, to start is, um, what do you mean when you say that? Quote, as the unified now that Japanese television attempted to create lost its hold on viewers, a disparate array of nows took its place. And then the second question is, and how is the so-called Friday incident of 1986, which you you go into some detail about, um, how does that exemplify the collapse of this sort of older regime and its replacement by something new and different? Um, So as as a mini case study of the analysis that you're doing.
0: Yeah, I and mean, for us to think about the bigger picture of what's happening, uh, and to sort of turn to what I was talking about earlier, uh, I and mean, the big picture is, is you have, you know, this idea, again, that, you know, modern one, one form that modern nations, you know, came together, and this is sort of the Benedict and Anderson uh, argument, but also uh, Stephen Kern has talked about time, talks about this as well. Uh, this idea that you get a flip, and I'm not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing. I'm sort of leaning on this. I'm obviously, I'm some of these, I'm sure, historians and sociologists will have much more fine-grained points on this. But the big picture idea is, is that you know, somewhere in the you know 19th century, uh, in in modern industrialist countries, you get this flip uh, to you know a public uh, the sort of uh, or alignment of public and private time. Where yes, we all have our we all agree that we have our own private times and they don't line up. But this idea that then there's a national public time that somehow our pub, our private times are being uh, not perfectly synchronized with, but aligned with in some ways, and there's sort of alignment there. Uh, and so you know, one way to think about '80s fragmentation then and then what we have now is is that you you're really having a breakup of that right. Uh, and again, just to sort of re- re- rewind, part of the argument I'm saying is just like, OK, this is this was actually didn't just happen in the 80s. Uh, it, it was underfoot in the 60s and 70s, but it really is kind of coming to the fore uh, in the 1980s, I would agree. Uh, I, I lean here on another Japanese scholar, Haruhiro Yuki uh who was more of a philosopher but has a really great book on uh japanese bubble or in my opinion a great book on japanese bubble culture called uh bubble boom i believe uh he introduces this idea that there is this sort of proliferation of multiple nows and that's what i'm referring to there and leaning on there uh So you're not getting just the end of, it's not the center won't hold and all of a sudden you get multiple private nows that cannot communicate with each other or somehow can't align with each other. You're getting this fusing of the public and private uh then that's creating these multiple semi-public now's that kind of overlap and kind of don't and you know think about sort of typically it's like okay I can have my interest and I can be interested in uh this sort of fashion, you know, you know, we see that in Japan a lot of these different types of, you know, interests and whatnot. Um so I can be into goth fashion and and that somehow kind of overlaps with other ones. It's not linking up to a, a big over over Arching, you know, sort of grand narrative time. It's sort of kind of overlapping multiple other nows that are kind of semi-public uh and private. So, uh you know, really, I, you know, I'm trying to link my own, or yeah, you know, link up my own the discussion of comedy and say, well, that, you, you see, comedy the same sort of thing going on. Or comedy Zone is kind of becoming a voice for that. Uh, on top of it, you get this sort of multiplication of all these different type of comedy forms, uh and it really becomes that's when you really start seeing like. The sort of variation of the com- it was always varied, but there's a variation of the comedy market. They're also being treated more like idols. They're also being sort of latched in or linked into the same sort of media system that is used to sell idols and so all different types of interests. Then, uh, you know, so it's, it's becoming sort of same sort of logic. Um, so that's what I'm sort of getting at with this idea of multiple nows uh, to then also kind of then like take step back or sort of think back to what i was saying in the last question uh so when you think about what's saying sort of shifting in japanese comedy then between the 1970s 1980s and to think about okay why is comedy responding to these multiple nows what i'm really saying is in that 1970s moment where you get this final like actual the illusion of the unified now created you're getting those sort of disparate and sort of uneasy you know you're getting all the sort of disparate moments. You're bringing them into a whole, like, okay, the unified you know, national audience watching Zayin Shugo, this great comedy show that everybody was supposed to be watching on Saturday night at 8 p.m. That I mean, was in the title. Everybody's watching it at 8 p.m. Uh, and it's this idea that, okay, everybody's watching, everybody's loving it. But then if you read the sort of discussions and you know you go through like the newspaper editorials and whatnot, and people will write all these like letters to the editor about TV shows. So they're great for that. Uh, you get a lot of people like, oh, Zayn Shugo is kind of boring, or wow, what's going on with Zayn Shugo? It's it's not the national unified audience they would have you think. Uh, and so what I'm saying is, is, then that kind of explodes in the 1980s, that, that that uneasy truce is then kind of falls apart in the 1980s. And I don't want to create, once again, I don't want to create too pat of a narrative. But 19, it, it, 1980 is this great cut point, because then you get the manzai boom. Uh, and I talk about that in the book as well. But the manzai boom, uh was this media phenomenon was part produced part sort of i guess a little bit grassroots you know I do treat is more of a produced phenomenon but it is this moment where all of a sudden everything seems to change overnight again uh and manzai is uh you know a classic form of comedy in japan it's dual stand-up comedy for people who are not familiar with it where you have a bokeh the funny man and the us me the straight man um, but it was seen as sort of dying. It was like, oh, it's kind of on life support. Uh, you know, young people aren't into manzai. And this is 19, you know, 1979, the vision of what was going on. It's like, oh, young people aren't into it anymore. Uh, it's just these old guys hanging out in weird colored suits, uh, talking about stuff that nobody's interested in. And then all of a sudden, all this whole new generation of manzai artists blast onto the scene. Uh, they are very popular with young people uh it's being sold as a youth phenomenon uh and so it's also sort of the changing of the guard uh of that but then it it you know it, it, i don't think i have time to go through all of this but you know there's all these things going on they're they're much more it's a much more cynical type of comedy uh you know beat takashi then that we can use to sort of talk about the the friday incident comes onto the scene. And so a lot of Western probably listeners are familiar with Kitano Takeshi, who's known as a film auteur, but actually he got his start as a comedian. He's better known in Japan as Beat Takeshi, which was his his comedic name. And so he blasts onto the scene as one half or the most dominant half of this group called Two Beat, uh, sometimes translated as Two Beats. uh, And they're known for this very sort of taboo-breaking comedy uh where they would do these PSA bits uh public service announcements where they would take famous public service announcements flip them around uh and make them these really sort of like you know as we would call them sort of anti-PC or you know anti-woke or something like that comments about like you know ones you know the original PSA being you know before you go to bed make sure you twist the knob tightly and it could be read as like you know I think it was read as like you know Tighten your gas line, or tighten your 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 the knob on your door, or something like that. But then it they change it before you go to sleep. You know, twist their necks, mom and dad, uh, so as if you should kill off your parents because they're a bother to you. And then they have a lot of other uh, jokes dealing with you know women. you using, using the term busu, which is you know a, a sort of slur word for ugly women. Uh, and talking about baba, old women. So all this stuff that might've been there on TV, probably more in the late night or on the radio, as we are saying before, but wasn't really being allowed in prime time. And all of a sudden they're saying that, right? And so it's this moment where I'm saying, you get this this breakdown, where stuff you're not supposed to say in public is then seeping uh, into the public. Uh, so I'm reading as a sort of analogy of that, that moment of this breakdown, the multiple nows. So that really, brought, you know, uh, pushes B. Takashi, to the fore and he becomes a dominant force, uh, you know, through the 80s, 90s, even the 2000s. He's still around. You still see him on TV. Uh, I think there's sometimes, I've, I've, I've never heard officially jokes like, okay, maybe his bank account's dwindling down. That's when you see B. Takeshi show back up on TV. Uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of what's going on in the 80s, uh, you know, another way to think about it, I forgot to make this contrast, another way to think about what's going on is, is that, you know, B. Takeshi then is always compared to Hagimoto Kinchi. As I was saying, it's Hagimoto came out of Kontokoju Gogo, and they they have these interesting, very parallel, yet very divergent uh, career lines. They both come out of Asakusa, they both trained in the same halls of Asakusa, uh, they have very similar stories, the sort of rags to riches type stories, uh they're both very well known for the sort of ad-lib off-the-cuff comedy and ability to also sort of steer talk. Uh, but they're also great to make these sort of contrasts. And the point that's often made about Haigimo Kinichi then, uh, not I, I hope I'm not muddling the narrative here, but by stepping back into Haigimo but Haikimakinichi uh you know was very well known for creating this public persona that felt like you knew him, uh, and he became known as his family guy during the 70s uh despite his sort of uh iconoclastic image during the late 60s becomes this family figure so the thing is all said by he's able to create this public persona but it feels so public and it feels like you have this private connection with him and a lot of people are talking parasociality now he was like sort of like the original one of the first people i think that really worked that well in japan uh to create this sort of parasocial connection with him felt like he was your own father figure uh so create that public but he, he really sort of created this firewall between that and his private life uh and you know obvious reasons he would do that doesn't you don't want your private life there but he did that very well and he you don't really know much about his private life so he just has this public persona that feels private what takashi does then he's takashi uh also simply creates this public persona and you feel like you know him but at the same time there's no firewall there between his public and private uh, and so even before the the Friday incident, there was already the sense that, you know, he was, was constantly bringing in his, his private life into the public and it was already kind of all out there to show. Uh, and so the, the Friday incident, to go really briefly, so i had been uh, keeping a mistress, young mistress, uh, a long time being married, uh, and Friday, which was one of these photographic you know tabloids that had would taken off during the 80s, Uh, had been following her around and getting pictures of her Uh, I believe it was published and then uh, Kitano finds out about this and he he goes storming into the Friday editorial office and uh, brings his He's got this uh, coterie of, uh, you know, apprentices that, like self sided like apprentices of of him of his, and they all they're basically a gang though, and they're called the uh, Takashi Gundan, the Takashi Army, and they go storming this this the editorial offices and threatening violence. I believe they do uh, eventually hit uh, some of the people and there are injuries, uh, and then and then run out, uh, and they're obviously arrested, uh, and it becomes this really big deal. Uh, that someone had done this. And, so, uh, and, you know, there's all these different things we can talk about there, obviously, like freedom of speech, uh, freedom of journalism, attack on journalism. But it really sort of divides uh, the Japanese media world uh, between people who are like, okay, this is an attack on freedom of press. This is an attack on drones, We don't want to condone this. Uh, this other side, which are, you know, even Hagi she comes out and said, and they're kind of like, eh, yeah yeah it's not good but i get what he's doing because the you know the the tablets are going way too far and they're inviting our private life uh but there's also this interesting reading that what he's also doing it's this it's this sort of culmination of the fact that Keaton's always been doing this though he's always been bringing his private life into the public sphere uh and so you know i do so yeah i bring it up at the end of my third chapter as a sort of way to sort of wrap up that it's going to show how like He's very much this this image of that, uh, and we can also think about. He's also got. He, he doesn't just have. It's interesting. He doesn't also to so go back to these multiple notes. He doesn't just have one public persona. He he's also well known for creating these multiple personas. Like, okay, is he Beat Takeshi the the comedian? Is he Kitano Takeshi the auteur? Um, Or is he? He also has all these other you know characters he creates. What, what who is he? And so you can say, well, he's also in himself. He is those multiple now is being sort of personified on, on our television screens and, and movie screens as
1: well. Yeah, um, yeah I thought this was a, a really interesting way to think about the kind of uh, shifting dynamics of the media environment, and in particular, um, you know, Beat or Kitano Takeshi is, is such an, you know, as you, as you sort of pointed out, such an interesting figure how you know, he in himself is sort of a little bit about the fragmenting of comedy and the public persona. And I was I was reminded a little bit in listening to you talk a little more than more than I was in the book, and this is maybe something I missed, and I want to go back and think about a little bit. I was reminded, I guess, I think it's you know, originally uh, uh, read this maybe in an Ogawa Aji uh, piece, you know, way back. But uh, the idea that sort of the uh, you know the, the the myth of Japanese homogeneity is much easier in. high growth era right in the 60s and into into maybe the early 70s when you start to have things breaking down a bit Um, and it's easier because uh, not because people are ethnically homogeneous but because they're pursuing a at least idealized, more sort of homogeneous, uh, idealized lifestyle, right? You're all getting on the same, you know, you're all living in the same you? getting on the same trains to go to the same jobs, to go to the same schools, right? Um, and, and the 70s, you know, sort of endangers that in an interesting way, right? With you have oil shocks, and you have, you know, all these other sort of traumas um, that get talked about a lot in thinking about the 70s. Um, and then in the 80s, you know, there's a, I find this a really sort of fascinating decade, right? Because you have, uh, on the one hand, the kind of breakdown of that, and on the other hand, it is the bubble era, which is this incredible new um, narrative of sort of national unification in a way. Uh, and, and, and I, I, I want to think a little bit more about uh, that, that question of sort of what the, what the 80s means, because um, you're, you're making a really interesting argument for uh, that as a, as a powerful decade to understand post-war Japan um, you know, through, through, in this case, uh, the sort of temporality of laughter. Um, I want to just returning to the book, though. You know, you write early on uh, about your belief in the underlying importance of um, contemporary mass media laughter permeating every corner of cultural and social life in Japan, as you write. Uh, where it gives voice to a time of increasing crisis and precarity, but also joy and newfound community through the ability to mix pleasure and uneasiness as well as discord and unity. And I guess this is sort of where I was going with that previous thought, right? Um, And so after then the bubble bursts though, uh, the so-called document variety, uh, reality television genre as you write, um, embraced television's laughter uh, and it's now predominantly ambivalent character. So, uh, so w- what has that meant for you know, mediated laughter, right? Which is the big subject here. Um, and how does that relate to the sort of omnipresence of Yoshimoto Kogyo, this sort of monster of uh, comedy promotion, this mega corporation, um, and sort of how does Yoshimoto come to the fore and become so dominant in this post bubble uh, new world?
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, at first I'd say like, I, I think what's really going on there, and probably didn't have enough space to really sort of make pronounce in the book, because uh, you do have to necessarily, you know, necessarily focus on certain things. I think what's really happening there is you're getting this sort of, you know, like like the proliferation now is so you get know, proliferation of different types of comedy that can, as I was saying, it suit your needs or your interests as a person, uh, and and dempa and or document variety uh as i can talk about in a second is is one then form of that or at least that form that was taking place in the 90s is sort of ambivalent edgy uh laughter but you do have like really sort of mainstream comedy that's sort of what they call beta warai like really sort of like easy to understand comedy never dies with the drifter the drifters continue uh the their show ends zain Shugo ends but you know, uh, you know, several of the members hang around uh, forever and they have their their own shows. And then there's people who sort of do that style of comedy. Uh, and I'll come back to second Yoshima Akogyo, but I think what Yoshima Akogyo does well is, is that they just pick anybody and everybody in so they can have every different style of comedy there. They're, they are an agency, they are a talent agency, they're very much like the idol agencies who then also try to, create different types of characters to appeal to different audience niches. Uh, and so you're getting that first off, um, what I think is interesting then, or what I'm trying to argue about with document, uh, documented variety or document variety, uh, in the nineties is you're getting this very, you're getting this another one of these moments where, uh, things don't go to the official plan. Right. Uh, kind of like the late 60s, where also, or the, the 1980s, where things, tab taboos are being broken. Uh, and it is because probably of official plans. There are producers behind this that have, you know, profit objectives in mind when they do this, but something kind of leaks out that wasn't, you know, it doesn't follow the official line. Uh, and so I do talk a lot about this program called Denpa Shonen. Uh, which was sort of the, 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 ur document variety and document variety as a form of reality TV in Japan, they really sort of brought it out and made it a thing, but they started out as a late night program and they become known for doing these show, uh, this, this, this formula called the Apo Nashi, the no appointment, where they would go visit people, famous people, you know, government, you know, government officials, politicians, uh, media stars, and not make an appointment they just show up and they would ask them to do these bizarre things or these really mundane things. Like, Oh, can I compare my height to you? Or, you know, can you, uh, you know, teach me English? Uh, it's, you know, it's really sort of, uh, oddball things like, you know, and you can think about similar ones that are also having the same time around the globe, Jackass, uh, to pull on my, my knowledge of us media. I don't know as many other places, but Jackass, uh, but also Ali G is, you know, I guess more like two thousands, but there, it's a similar sort of moment, but the, What I'm saying there is you have this moment where the bubble is breaking and things are kind of falling apart and they're becoming one of these sort of valves, but they're very ambivalent valve for that. They're not they're not satire in the strict sense where they're coming saying, oh, look at what the government's doing. And then, you know, if only uh, they're just doing what they want to do. But it gets that sort of edginess of that moment uh, of what's of this crisis of breakdown. Uh, They then. They become more to more mainstream. Uh, the apo nashi becomes more and more impossible because people know what to expect, uh, and so they start following this more sort of formulaic, uh, uh, you know, uh, formulas, formulaic formulas, and like they become known for their their hitchhike series, and that's when they become more sort of mainstream. Um, you know, I think that you keep the edginess, you know, sort of ambivalence there, but there are that sort of ambivalent laughter. I think that comes up uh during the 90s i don't talk about it here i just also have a paper out on what's also a surreal comedy or shuru Nawarai no uh i think i talk about it really briefly maybe in the book uh but that's another phenomenon you see coming up and it's also this sort of ambivalent hanging laughter unresolved laughter uh where the punchline isn't a punchline anymore it's just this kind of moment of like what what did i just look at uh, what was this thing? Uh, it's not to say that everybody's watching this, but then that becomes this one possibility of comedy. You have comedy is so widespread by now, and so many people are into comedy that you can do that. You can say we'll put out different types of comedy, and there'll be enough of an audience for this this very niche form of of comedy. Uh, and so then Yoshimoto springs onto the scene. Uh, isn't it? Really, you know, it doesn't really spring onto the scene. I should condition they've been around for a hundred years. But, you know, I try to do something a little unusual with Yoshimoto in the book. Uh, Yoshimoto Kogyo, uh, you're probably familiar with him, but some listeners are maybe not familiar with, uh, is the com- comedy talent agency in Japan. Uh, M1 Grand Prix, which is this yearly comedy competition that decides the best manzai group, and they, they have a, probably a large role in actually producing it. Uh, but also, if you look at the list of who's won every year, and who their talent agency is? It's like ninety percent Yoshimoto Kogyo. They they rule the roost, um, and I think they have, they have this insane number uh, of signed on talents. I think it's like two thousand, or I think it's even more than that. Um, and maybe twenty. I'm I'm forgetting the number. It's this insane number of talents that they they on the books manage. Uh, there's uh there's questions about whether that's true, but they do have a lot of people, and. By the 2000s, or and I was talking about at the beginning, they've really become the brand of comedy. Um, so a lot of the typical histories then that sort of pop up once Yoshimoto's become so big by the 2000s make them seem like this was just always this way, that Yoshimoto's always big. And, they, you know, they, they've been around since, I think, like, not the exact date, but the early 20th century uh, when this couple of the Yoshimotos, founded them as a sort of you'll say a comedy hall management uh company uh a lot of the histories treat that as it's like they just went there was this onward march but if you look at it they it's interesting because first they did get kind of big before the war the war uh sort of annihilated their business because a lot of their, their 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 halls were destroyed during the war these comedy halls they owned were were destroyed during the war they lost a lot of their talent uh, and so Shochiku also the was was actually the dominant comedy agency after the war. And Yoshimoto was like kind of struggling to keep up. And they they made most of their money off of managing uh you know uh movie theaters. And as I found and I mentioned one time an interesting sort of data point, but one point apparently during the 60s, they made more money from bowling, like managing bowling alleys. It's like sort of crazy stuff to think about that this is this thing goes on to be a comedy giant. Um So they really don't start kind of getting to where they are uh, until about the 70s. Uh, And so that's what I tried doing the book is instead of just making this sort of like, okay, we're going to show how Yoshimoto was always there. They weren't always there. Uh, They were very much a local group. They're located in Kansai. And so what happens then, though, in the 80s, they're able to start they they very uh deftly take advantage of the manzai boom they sort of muscle their talent in uh they muscle with the producers to sort of push their uh put their their manzai talent or their manzai performers into sort of top billing uh and they really take off during the 80s and so then they sort of nationalize this kansai brand of comedy that they have this osaka brand of comedy that have uh, that if if you're not familiar with it, and I know you're probably once again listeners might not be familiar with it. Konsei comedy now has the image in Japan as being the comedy, the funny comedy. That's where all you know all the funny stuff comes from. It's the more sort of you know the wrong end of the tracks kind of comedy. Uh, and Kansai Ben is sort of a, the Konsei dialect is associated with comedy, and just assume that if you come from Kansai, you're funnier. Uh, and Yoshimi really sort of sells that brand uh, of comedy and they they kind of create this great foundation that didn't really take off in the 90s and 2000s. You know, interesting what they do then is, is that as the economy is sort of bottoming out in the 90s, they actually start picking off. Uh, and, uh, you know, according to their executives, what's happening is, is that the TV uh, networks uh, still need content, but they can't really afford the high, you know, value, the expensive content that was being pushed out in the 80s. Uh, and so they make, start producing more variety shows. And who do you turn to to start staffing your variety shows? You turn to Yoshimoto. Uh, and so Yoshimoto does very well during, uh, during that period. And what they had been creating uh, during the 80s, and so sort of segue to what I'm sort of the bigger argument making about Yoshimoto, they start creating this, during the 80s, this strategy, what they call the no-brand comedian. Uh, and the idea is to make a comedian who, yeah, they have a kind of their own sort of identity and feel to them, but they're supposed to be more sort of flexible. So they're becoming sort of a media product in themselves, a comedian. Uh, they shouldn't just be, oh, the performance hall comedian. They shouldn't just be, you know, Manzai performance. They are Manzai performance, but they can't be just that. They need to be able to show up on variety shows. They need to be able to show on an advertisement. They need to be able to show up in a, in a magazine. So they need to be more flexible. And, and you know, Yoshima calls this as it's no brand strategy. The idea is, is that they're also sort of uh, disrupting uh, the way that comedy was done uh, and the way it was done before is you had a, a master, you know, a well-known comedian, performer, well-known rakugo artist, well-known manzai artist, and you apprentice under them, you get their their last name, their performer name, and you become sort of the, the next generation of that performer. They disrupt that and say, no, we're going to actually train our own comedians now. And we're going to they start creating training halls. And so the, what they do then is create this very industrial version of media production, where they're able to control everything from the moment the comedian starts training. They, they you, you come into the Yoshimoto school, you then you practice out, you sort of you know get your sea legs in a, in a Yoshimoto owned performance hall, and then Yoshimoto then shops you out to TV shows. And so they're controlling everything, and then they try to then grow that out during the nineties and two thousands start getting well; they'd already been, but they get more involved in, in TV production. Uh, and they, they very wisely, but they, they never do it successfully, but they're actually very sort of, uh, part If you look at their, you know, discussions from the nineties and two thousands, they already sense that things are shifting in the world, the TV world. And we need to sort of sidestep TV. TV is going to be a great partner, but the networks are kind of this just chokehold. And we need to start making our production and we can actually, they are starting saying, oh, the internet's going to be this great place where we're going to be able to, you know, get content right to viewers without having to go through the networks. Uh, and the networks are famous for being sort of having their way of doing things and, and sort of controlling things. You know, it's like, well, we could, you know, they look at things, you know, the, yeah, there's this discussion, like, well, we, we want to sell our stuff to the video. and We can't do that because the TV studios actually own the you know, production rights. So they might own another... Uh, or some other agency might have the rights uh, rights as well because when their performers show up, we'll just create our own content. Uh, and so Yoshimundo also becomes this great way for me to sort of show how the old is in leading into new and how you do get this sort of dovetailing. You don't get this moment, all of a sudden TV is replaced, or TV is replaced by the internet. You get this moment, you get this like kind of long, you know, 10, 15 years where they're sort of working alongside each other and TV is trying to sort of acclimate to it. And then you know you get the situation where you know where TV doesn't disappear, but it's also sort of sharing this landscape now uh, with others. But you know, also obviously, my argument being comedy's still there, and comedy is more uh, is also central. Just to bring it back a, a second to you know where it is. Um, yeah, I, I think I think I could stop there. I, there's much more I could say about that, um, but
1: yeah. Sure. Well, you are. I mean, and you 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 already uh, mentioned uh, you know another paper that you have written uh, in this you know, sort of general field of thinking about comedy. Um, and I wanted to to ask whether there's uh, something else that uh, uh, you're working on these days now that the the book is out.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I continue to work on, you know, comedy, what I, you know, put out a couple more articles, sort of, there was so much to write about in the book uh, these other types of comedy, and they didn't want to just have the book to be like going on forever. Uh, so kind of looking at some of these other areas of comedy, uh, my, my, my current project, I'm sort of departing a, quite a bit from, uh, comedy. Uh, I think we'll come back to it later. Uh, and looking more at, at the new media, so is other interests that I have in new media was called new media, digital media, uh, and whatnot. So I do, uh, Looking some at, you know, streaming also just had an article out on streaming uh, and what's going on the Japanese streaming landscape, Uh, but my other project is completely different Uh, uh, working on this other project now. you know, I've always been interested, in sort of, you know, how cybernetics and 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 systems theory leads into you know more current uh, issues, and you know, you know, now it's being talked about as artificial intelligence, but I like look it's more sort of machine learning and deep learning, uh, and so I'm working on a project on that. Uh, Is could probably be famously closely associated with comedy, right? Yeah. Very very closely. So in my mind, there's a lot of connection. There's, there's I could go through like how I got to that point, but a lot of it was you sort of think I was being interested in uh other things that was interested was looking at TV. So to give an example, I'm looking at uh uh Fukushima, uh, Fukushima Kunihiko, who's one of the early pioneers of machine learning uh in Japan. And he made something called the neocognitron that then goes on to be the basis for you know, the, the you know, image recognition, deep learning, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, uh, and then cite the him as a sort of early precedent for, uh, you know, multi-layered, deep-layered, uh, deep learning neural networks. Uh, and interestingly, where he originally worked and where he's doing all this work and creating this neural network back in the 70s, he was working in NHK labs. And so NHK labs, they say NHK being a TV, you know, the, the national TV network, the public TV network had a research hall and part of that research was doing sort of advanced research on human perception and cognition uh, with the eye of thinking of, okay, how do we understand how people see images and how they hear sounds, so that we can make TV better? Uh, And so he was very much sort of modeling this this who's going in a different direction, he was, he was he was still modeling around how people were looking at TV images. Um, so part of the thing about how, once again, as we are saying with the the Oshima, how, how, does he, how does the how does new come out of the old? Uh, so that would be sort of the background of the the book. I'm working on that right now. I've also done other stuff on on biometrics or biometric surveillance, but leading into that, um, how does these new technologies, very scary technologies, we have now of biometric surveillance, the ability to sort of track you or a group of youth as you move through the shopping mall and see what you're doing and serve you up certain you know TV ads or no, sorry, not TV, display ads and whatnot uh based on inferences about who you are, what you are uh and how it really goes back to how we're being sort of the the gaze is being disciplined or how sort of, images and and sens- sensory you know uh, perception is being reorganized around sort of a cybernetic vision uh of how we sort of interact with media
1: so well that's uh it's a it's a interesting leap from uh comedy mm-hmm. yeah uh, <laughs> but, but clearly the but yeah i mean the, the, it it makes it makes sense right the, the the sort of uh i mean when you think about the uh surveillance technologies and questions about perception and such. Those are obviously very related to your interest uh, in media. So uh, yeah, I, I hope we will definitely uh, be able to uh, have you back uh, on the podcast when, when that book comes out um, and we can laugh less and be afraid more. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us and take care. Yeah, thank you for having me.